Uh, good morning, church. Good morning. Wow, there are a lot of you here. You must not have heard that my dad was out of town. <laughs> if you'll turn with me, uh, our text this morning comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 25. It is kind of lengthy, so I'm not going to invite you to stand uh, for it. Uh, you could start falling asleep now. Um, all right. Tough crowd. All right. It is my pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, believe it or not, I really struggled to find the text I really wanted to preach from when, I was, uh, when my dad reached out to me and said, hey, Caleb, why don't you preach in a couple weeks on numbers? I was like, great. Uh, what text do you want me to do? He said, oh, just anything in there. And I, some of you may not believe me, but I, I really struggled because there are so many good texts in the book of numbers uh, to preach from. I thought about doing Moses and the snakes and the bronze serpent. I thought about doing Balaam and his donkey. I thought about doing quail coming out of being so full of quail that it's coming out of their noses and mouths. Um, but ult uh, I even thought really, you know, test out my preaching skills and pick one of the censuses at the beginning or end of the book and really see what we can make of that. Uh, but ultimately, uh, we're taking perhaps one of the most central texts from this passage, and honestly, out of this whole journey through the wilderness in general, coming out of the book of Numbers chapter 14, uh, Israel has made their way to the promised land. They're like within a stone's throw of it, and they send 12 spies over to check it out and see just what the promised land is like. The spies come back, give kind of a mixed review of things, and this is where we pick up. All right. The entire community raised their voice, and the people wept that night. All right, good start so far. All the Israelites criticized Moses and Aaron. The entire community said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken by force. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to each other, let's pick a leader and let's go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembled Israelite community. But Joshua, Nun's son, and Caleb, Jephunneh's son, from those who had explored the land, tore their clothes, and said to the entire Israelite community, the land we crossed through to explore is an exceptionally good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us. It's a land that's full of milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are our prey. Their defense has deserted them, but the Lord is with us, so don't be afraid of them. But the entire community intended to stone them. Then the Lord's glory appeared in the meeting tent to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people disrespect me? And how long will they doubt me after all the signs that I performed among them? I'll strike them down with a plague and disown them. Then I'll make you into a great nation stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, uh, The Egyptians will hear, for with your power you brought these people up from among them. 
They'll tell the inhabitants of this land, they've heard that you, the Lord, are with this people. You, Lord, appear to them face to face. Your cloud stands over them. You go before them in a column of cloud by day and in a column of lightning by night. If you kill these people, every last one of them, the nations who heard about you will say, the Lord wasn't able to bring these people to the land that he solemnly, solemnly promised to give them, so he slaughtered them in the desert. Now let my master's power be as great as you declared when you said, the Lord is very patient and absolutely loyal, forgiving wrongs and disloyalty, Yet he doesn't forego all punishment, disciplining the grandchildren and great-grandchildren for their ancestors' wrongs. Please forgive the wrongs of these people because of your absolute loyalty, just as you've forgiven these people from their time in Egypt up until now. Then the Lord said, I will forgive as you requested, but as I live, and as the Lord's glory fills the entire earth, none of the men who saw my glory and the signs I did in Egypt and in the desert, but tested me these ten times and haven't listened to my voice, will see the land I promised to their ancestors. All who disrespected me won't see it. But I'll bring my servant Caleb into the land that he explored, and his descendants will possess it because he has a different spirit, and he has remained true to me. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valley, tomorrow turn and march into the desert by the route of the Reed Sea. The word of God for the people of God. I think I already said it's good to be here this morning, right? Yeah, it is, it is really good to be here. It's not just like the obligatory opening for every sermon ever, but it, it truly is good to be here with you this morning. Most of you probably know uh, while I help with online ministry here at College Church, my day job is over at a little school past uh, Caldwell called Greenleaf Friends Academy. Go Grizz, okay? Uh, <laughs> what some of you may not know, though, is beyond teaching over there, my first two years there, I was also the coach of the middle school basketball team. I don't know whose idea that was. It certainly wasn't mine. I believe the conversation went something like this. Uh, our athletic director came to me and said, hey, Caleb, uh, you, you know basketball, right? And I said, I mean, I like to watch basketball. I watch plenty of it on TV. He said, good enough. All right, you're the coach now of the middle school. So for two years, uh, myself and a handful of sixth, seventh, and occasionally an eighth grade boy uh, wandered through the wilderness of Idaho, traveling from small town to small town, just getting absolutely wrecked in basketball. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it, went, it would go something like this. We would show up at a town. Uh, I'll leave names out just in case any of you are from there. You never know in Idaho. Everyone's related. Um, We'd show up at the town, and it would feel like the entire town was there. They had nothing else to do on, at 3.30 in the afternoon than come and watch their middle school boys basketball team uh, feast on the Greenleaf Grizzly that day. <laughs> there would be, the other team would show up just absolutely shredded. Uh, 
you should not look at a, you know, an eighth grader and be like, man, I'm pretty sure that guy just dunked, right? And here's my, me with like, I don't, I don't know what's in the water at Greenleaf, but you know, they're not that tall. And so I got all these sixth graders, a couple seventh graders, and then the eighth graders at that point kind of knew what the deal was. Most of them didn't try out for the team. And we just, day after day, we'd lose. In fact, uh, my second year, we started calling ahead and asking schools if we could play their B team instead of their A team. And most, most coaches weren't thrilled about that, so we'd end up playing one quarter of A, which is like, if you're unfamiliar with middle school boys basketball, that's like your good team. B team's like your, yeah, it's seventh graders, they're learning, and then C team's just there to have a good time, right? Like, we were a really bad A team, but we were an okay B team. So we'd call ahead, we'd ask schools, hey, can we play your B team? And most coaches were fine about it, but they wanted to at least get their A team a run, so we'd play one quarter of A, and then we'd go, move on to the B team game. And usually the B team game would be pretty competitive, it'd come down to the wire, we'd still lose, usually lose, but at least it was close. But this one game, we went out, and I should have known something was up when we showed up and the coach said, hey, uh, we're gonna do the one, we, your athletic director talked to me, we'll do the one quarter A, full game of B, but can we do the quarter of A at the end? And I said, oh yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, not thinking anything of it. Uh, we go on to play their B team. It is an intense game. I'm coaching my heart out. I'm over there like, yeah, guys, play hard. Basketball. Uh, <laughs> you can do it. Uh, dribble, pass. Uh, oh, they stole it. Okay, right, keep going. Good. All right, yeah, yeah. Um, my assistant coach is doing a lot of the heavy lifting at this point. Um, but it's back and forth, and then finally, we take the lead. And I'm not wanting to get too excited at this point, but I, I'm getting a little excited. I'm up out of my seat. I'm like, come on, guys, let's go! Uh, the other team comes. They, they miss. There's like 30 seconds left, right? We come back. We miss. They miss again. We steal the ball. They steal. And at the last second, they have to huck up a wild shot, and we win by one. Our fans are ecstatic. I'm thinking, I need to get a raise. <laughs> and then the A team takes the court. I kid you not, their lead point guard was 6-1 in eighth grade. Probably looked like he benched 220. I don't know. This kid is, these kids are twice my kid's size. They look like they could eat my team for breakfast. And we go out there, and we literally cannot inbound the ball. Their coach has them in a full court press the entire time we're out there. And it hits a point where I'm just about ready to just pull my kids and just, or just tell them, hey, just take the, the violation and we'll play defense because like this is, someone's gonna get hurt out here. Went from uh, feeling pretty good to, uh, I hope I'm not fired when I get back. So I, I've never led anyone to the promised land. I've never, despite my name, been a spy in the promised land. But I do have some experience of dealing with impossible odds at the hands of apparent giants. And let me tell you, it is a very scary thing. Our story today comes from the middle of the wilderness narrative. Uh, we know this book by the name of Numbers, which we get from uh, its Greek title. Uh, it's not really a great title for a book. 
It makes me feel like I, I'm, if I open it, I'm going to do math homework or something. Uh, it gets its name, honestly, though. There's a big census at the beginning and end of the book. But then the middle of the book is really just filled with really weird, cool, fun stories from Israel's journey from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land and then kind of hanging out in the desert for what ends up being 40 years. And if you've been at college church uh, much before, you'll know that numbers in the Bible are important. Yes? Um, my dad loves to talk about them. Yeah? Seven is a great number of completion. Twelve is pretty good if you're wanting a group of people to represent kind of all of God's people. And 40 in the Bible, though, coming specifically from this part of the Bible, becomes an archetypal number of times of transformation and revelation. We leave 40-somethings, and we really figure out who we are and who God is. So it's no mistake that in Genesis, Noah in the ark, while they're there for a long time, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. It's not a surprise that when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he's there for 40 days. Although the result of his temptation is a little different than what the Israelites end up with here. 40 is a time where we realize who God is. And so as I was preparing this week, thinking about this text, I really thought about, as we look at this text, what does Israel's time in the wilderness teach us about who God is and about who we are? And I think those are fairly easy questions to answer, though the implications of them are a little frightening. Because we learn that God is making a people. This shouldn't surprise us. From the very beginning of the Bible, God chooses to partner with human beings. All the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates these beings called humans, places them in a garden, says, you are made in my image. Go reflect myself in the world. Go take care of creation. You are in charge. I work through you. When that kind of falls apart, God tries again, comes to Abraham, says, Abraham, we're making a people. Uh, I know you and your wife can't have kids, but we are, you are going to be a father of many nations, and I'm going to bless you, but not just so you're blessed, but I'm going to work through you and through you bless the nations. Well, that has some highs, has some lows, ultimately kind of falls apart, and the people end up in, in, uh, in slavery in Egypt. And God comes to Moses, and God says, Moses, I hear the cries of my people. I am going to save them from this bondage and create of them a new people. In fact, I have a land for them. It's just a little far away. We're going to get there. But the problem is the people have to go through the wilderness. And in the wilderness, there's struggles for things like, where are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What if people come up on us and have an army and we're just out here defenseless? And to all those questions again and again as they're raised up, God kind of sighs, usually, at least as I read the text. Oh, guys, just trust me, okay? And the people are again and again asked to put their trust in God. 
God's not going to let them store up bread so that they feel safe and secure in what they have. They're going to have to trust that the same God who gave them bread in the morning is going to have to give them bread the next day. There's not really flowing rivers around where they are, so they're going to have to trust a God who can bring water out of rocks. And when they come to enemy encampments and it feels like, uh, you know, an old western style, this town ain't big enough for the both of us type moment, usually in the Old Testament, it's very rarely that Israel has the numbers and the high ground and like wins via strategy. Usually they have to do something kind of weird and God saves them from their enemies. Do we trust the God who is building us to be a new people? The people struggle with it. In the book of Numbers, they're always fighting something. They're fighting other people. They're fighting amongst themselves. And usually they're fighting God. God's dragging them to the promised land. Because ultimately what we learn is to be God's people is not an easy calling. It requires patience. It requires trust. There's a whole lot of rules suddenly involved. Go read, reread Leviticus if you've already forgotten it from earlier this month. We're heading to Deuteronomy coming up. Don't worry. There's plenty more rules where those came from. And really, what's most frustrating is even if we can learn to follow the rules, God seems less interested in rule followers than he seems in people who have a changed heart, a changed life. And so even when the people manage to follow God's laws, God still seems to go, come on, guys, now can, like, one more time, like you mean it. And so here... We arrive in our story today. The people have trusted God occasionally, largely not trusted God, but God's continued to be faithful. And the question becomes, are they willing to put their full trust of all that they are in God? Are they willing to enter that promised land that they've heard stories of from generation to generation to generation? Because entering the promised land is an act of radical faith. There are giants there. It is wholly good. But the water in the promised land is very different from the water in Greenleaf, Idaho. It's not growing, you know, yay high. It's growing people yay high. And the, the Israelites aren't so sure. In fact, majority of the spies, 10 of the 12, say, guys, we did the math. We looked. We ran some stats. It's a no-go. I think we need to head on back. In fact, they make this ridiculous assertion. It's funny, but not like ha-ha funny, right? Hey, let's pick a new leader and go back to Egypt. And it's easy to look at them and go, man, what are they thinking? We just read Exodus. It was not a good time in Egypt. But I can't help but wonder, how often we would rather be enslaved to the broken habits of our lives that we're comfortable with and we know 
then we'd rather give over all of who we are, fully enter the promise. Because that's hard work, and it's scary. And it requires most of all asserting the fact that Christians claim, but we're not always good at living, but we remember, especially on this Sunday, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King, and I am not. Uh, St. Augustine, he lived, I don't know, he's getting closer and closer to 2,000 years ago. Um, He lived just before the fall of the Roman Empire, really famous theologian, philosopher in Christian history. Um, But he has a book that he called his Confessions, where he told his life story. Because he was not just like some saintly dude raised in the church, you know, uh, went to church every Sunday, knew his Bible verses, did Awanas, none of that. Uh, He was a rebel. He lists all the sins you could think of. He, He admits he was doing them. But there hits a point in his life journey where that doesn't satisfy the way he thought it would. And in fact, he looks at the religion of his mother. He gets, looks at the religion being offered him by mentors and goes, there's something about this Christianity thing. I have tried philosophy. I have tried sensual exploits. I have tried everything to fill this hole in my heart and nothing will come to it. And there's this really beautiful moment uh, in book eight of his confessions where he is on the precipice of conversion. He wants to want to be Christian, but he keeps finding himself saying this, I want to give myself over to you, God, and be transformed by you, but not yet. I want you to make me new, but soon. Maybe not today. He relates it to waking up in the morning and how we all know it's better to be awake than asleep. He asserts that. Yeah, with me. It's better to be awake than asleep, generally. Yeah. Generally, it's better to be awake than asleep. I know some of us have had nice dreams that we wish we didn't have to wake up from. But generally, it's better to be awake than asleep. And he says this, yet in the morning when it's time to wake up, he didn't have a snooze alarm back then, but he says, I want to hit the snooze alarm. I'm not ready to wake up. I'd rather remain asleep where I can get nothing done than be awakened where I can do the the doing of life. And then he says, he says this, he found himself unable to accept God's grace because he says he built a chain. He himself had built a chain. He says this, his passions had been uncontrolled, which led him to habit. That habit over time turned into necessity. And in the bondage of that necessity, he found himself chained and unable to accept God's call for transformation in his life. Now it takes uh, kind of a miraculous moment for him in an orchard with his friend um, for God to fully lay claim to his will. But I think he points us to this exact issue that Israel's dealing with. Would they rather be slaves in something they're comfortable with or fully give themselves over to God? Into the unknown. 
to quote the great saint Elsa. Thanks, Gen Z. All right. And what's so fascinating to me in this story is Moses, yes, he intercedes on Israel's behalf and kind of almost reminds God, God, you can't do that. You're God. And God's like, oh, yeah, okay. I won't. But what's fascinating to me is God doesn't forgive them and then just let them in the promised land anyway. God says, no, you are going to live here in the desert for 40 years. None of you who were old enough to remember my, the miraculous things I did in Egypt and choose not to follow me into the promised land, you're done. Sorry. Later in Numbers, Moses will also prove himself to have, though a better understanding of God, as we see here, uh, still misguided in some ways, and will ultimately prove himself unworthy of entering the promised land. And I think when I was a kid and I heard these stories, I thought that it was kind of like this, that God was like our parent, and so when I was bad as a kid, sometimes I would lose privileges, right? You didn't take out the trash. No video games tonight. You hit your sibling. No TV. In fact, I think, uh, Noah, we, we used to get in trouble. Like, at a certain point, we lost all TV that wasn't Animal Planet after, like, 4 p.m. because we'd start fighting as we got tired. Too much Power Rangers. Uh, and I thought God acted like that, that this was this, right? God says, you guys aren't doing what you're supposed to, so I'm going to take away your privileges. No promised land, sorry. I don't make the rules. Actually, I do, right? Uh, <laughs> but as I get older, I realize I'm not sure that's the healthiest way to see what's going on here. That yes, there are moments in the Bible where God's judgment comes as a pillar of fire from heaven. Or the whole earth gets flooded. Not, never really goes full Zeus and just like lightning bolts someone out of the sky. But yes, there are those moments of divine intervention. But on the whole, generally, the judgment of God in Scripture is giving us what we want. God's judgment is giving to us exactly what we ask for. We see it here. The people repeatedly have keep going, God, God, why are you making us do this? We don't want this. We don't want your promised land. We'd rather go back to Egypt. It's easier. And God says, okay. Because God is king, but not in a king like we think of it. We think kings assert their authority by making rules, and if you don't follow the rules, off with the head, right? Like, but we see in the God of the Old Testament and then eventually in the New Testament with Jesus, a God who rules a very different way. Whose main attributes are not 
Yes, there is majesty, but are not authoritarianism, but self-giving love. Who, yes, gives rules, but is far more interested in who those rules make us than in keeping a, a calculator, you know, tab of how we're doing. The Psalms often think of it this way. In the Psalms, the psalmist will pray this, God, the wicked have set a trap for me. May they fall into the very traps of their own making. And as I've gotten older, I, I think this is how God generally deals with us. Because ultimately, what's at stake here is not arbitrary rules that we either, yay, you did it, here's a reward, or boo, you didn't do it, here's a negative consequence. But what God is calling us to is actually greater than the things that we would do ourselves. That if we take Genesis seriously, if we take the incarnation seriously, the life God is calling us to is not an arbitrary law placed on top of human nature. It is what human nature was always intended to be. And so to choose anything less than that is not to say, oh, I'm only human. It's actually to allow yourself to be less than human. This should frighten us a little bit. Because even when in Joshua, spoiler alert, they do get into the promised land. And even here, we get a, a hint at it. Caleb and Joshua, yes, they will go into the promised land. But not all the people. Yes, God forgives our sins. Yes. God wipes the slate clean. But often we still have to deal with the consequences. The consequences don't just go away because I come to the altar and pray, Lord, forgive me. Yes, perhaps the divine, eternal consequences, the state changes. But that brother or sister I've hurt or injured, they're usually still hurt or injured. It reminds me of King David, a man after God's own heart, remembered as Israel's greatest king, has a moment of moral failure that leads to another more moment of moral failure, that leads to deeper spirals of moral failure. Comes to the end, Nathan the prophet comes to him, calls him to repentance, David repents. And the rest of the book of 2 Samuel is his family life spiraling out of control. His one son does unspeakable evil to another family member. His other son, in retribution, kills the first son, tries to overthrow his father who he views as a weak king, and ultimately is killed a rebel's death. David ends his life alone, sorrowful, and still king. And God, God didn't have to step in and do that to David. David's choices did it to himself. I think here this helps me when, 
God here says, uh, Moses says, you punish the children and grandchildren of those who sin. I, I think more often than not, that's not God saying, well, this is a bad family line. Let's just cause torment. But it is the truth that we have to often reckon with the consequences of sinful actions that were not our own. And that's tough, but that's just the nature of things. Because ultimately, if I can quote uh, C.S. Lewis in his beautiful book, The Great Divorce, uh, where C.S. Lewis envisions a journey through hell, and his guide tells him this, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Would we rather return to slavery that is familiar and comfortable and habitual to us? Or are we willing to enter the promised land knowing that we have to change and that the math doesn't always add up and that there may be big opportunities, but there's also really big risk? The good news for us today is that when we make that choice, and even if we fail to make that choice in the past and then choose to make the choice later, God is a God who redeems. And that doesn't just mean saves us, saves our souls, praise be to God, God does that. But God can take the biggest hurts in our life and turn them into something beautiful. Out of David's unfaithfulness to God, he has to reckon with all the sin and death he's caused that spirals out of control in his family. But God redeems it. Out of that relationship with Bathsheba comes Solomon, who takes Israel to even greater heights than his father. The Israelites here Though they themselves will be rejected from the promised land, God is faithful to their kids and their grandkids, to Joshua and Caleb, and they enter into a promised land beyond what they could imagine. And when Christ is killed by the very people who ushered him into the city as king, is crucified, God raised him from the dead. And he still bears the marks of that betrayal. But through those marks, we are redeemed. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty Father, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, today may we again lay all of ourselves at your feet. May we hold nothing back. May we realize that you are Lord of it, and we are not. Transform us, heal us, and redeem us today. It is in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray all these things. Amen.
to quote my father, if you listened well this morning, don't hire me as your basketball coach. No, if you listened well this morning, God is making a people who are God's reflection and agents in the world. That is a high calling that requires a great deal of transformation on our part. Are we willing to take the plunge and trust that Jesus is King of Kings and can carry it through? Or would we rather return to the slavery and bondage to which we are familiar? As we go, would you stand with me? Go with this benediction today. The God who called you is able to fulfill these things in you. May Christ fill you in all areas of your life. And may you grow daily to reflect him more and more clearly. Amen. Go in his grace and peace today.